everyone. I am excited to be back for the second part of the four-part series that I'm doing on Billy Porter's memoir, Unprotected. Um, so as I explained in the first episode, the kind of outline that I'll do for these episodes is uh, I'm going to um, discuss the topics of environments that have influenced um, the person's life. Um, and then I will talk about, you know, different adversities such as racism, uh, homophobia, things like that. Um, I will comment on mental health, therapy, trauma, that kind of stuff. And then I wrap up the episodes with uh, something hopeful that I read in that uh, section of the book. So to begin, um, I mentioned in the first part about how Billy Porter... Uh, had to navigate the Christian church uh, growing up. Uh, with him being uh, gay and flamboyant, there was a lot of judgment and um, expectation put on him. Um, and so as I, as you go through this memoir, you'll notice that he it, it was something that really um, took many, not, not just years, but decades to process. And he's still working on what we call church hurt. Um, so this first um, quote that I'm going to share kind of um, gives a little bit more context into that. Quote, church folk can be the worst. Church, church folk can be petty and mean. They can make a person feel worthless, empty, and alone, all in Jesus's name. They were always shady to my mother. Lots of folk treated her like she was stupid because of her disability. She was othered in the only space she felt remotely safe, the only space she knew. I understood and respected the importance of the space for her, which is why I tried to stay in the church for as long as I could. But by the age of 16, I simply couldn't take it anymore. I felt used because I was fine with everyone when I was singing in church. But the minute anyone found out I was singing outside the church, I was branded not of God. I felt like I had a scarlet S on my chest that screamed, Sissy Center. I would become so enraged every time I had to sit quietly in the pews while every single pastor, preacher, minister, missionary, evangelist, and prophetess condemned the homosexuals as an abomination to be cast into the pits of hell for all eternity and said that AIDS was God's punishment for choosing that sinful lifestyle. It's not a fucking choice, you assholes, and, a good, and good people are dying for no reason. People I know, people who are my friends, people who live by the principles of Christ more than any of y'all up in the sanctuary, and all y'all holy Christians stood by and did nothing about the shit I endured at the hands and cock of my stepfather for five years, and none of y'all did nothing, none of y'all saw nothing? Nobody sensed that anything was wrong with a 12-year-old riddled with stomach ulcers. Nobody thought to pry and ask me why. Nobody thought it strange that I had nodules on my vocal cords at 13 and couldn't sing for six months, couldn't speak for the first three. Nobody? And I'm the center? Pastor up here having a Saturday afternoon delight in his back study with my mother's best friend. And when they get caught, pastor literally with his pants down. She has to apologize and shame 
in front of the entire congregation while he sits on his pulpit throne with no accountability or consequences required or applied. I see y'all. I see all y'all. So obviously he's really upset. He's he's processing the 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 church hurt um, that he observes. So he's kind of talking about how um, you know they the people in church liked him because he was great at singing. But when they found out that he also did theater and everything like that, they th- there was judgment. Um, he he really goes in about the how. You know, he was being molested uh, for years and, um, you know, it was being brushed under the rug. And um, this is actually very common um, in uh, the black community for, um, you know, things like this to kind of not be spoken about or dealt with. Um, and so he he was commenting on how, you know, these these traumas were occurring to him. Um, and there were very clear signs that he was, you know, under distress uh, growing up, but no one thought to check on him and things like that. But, you know, as he's, you know, developing and stuff like that, they want to nitpick at different things about him. So he really is feeling the hypocrisy here. And then, of course, you know, um, you have the, the the pastors who talk about, um, you know, uh, gay people and stuff like that, yet the pastors, you know, having an affair um, with members of the congregation and stuff like that. So um, he really um, lays it all out and how all of this is, doesn't make sense and how it's um, very harmful to him. So he goes on to share this uh, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So, quote, a white preacher woman was the guest closing speaker for the convention And the moment Pastor Dennis introduced her, she rose to the raised pulpit and she spoke directly to me. Brother Billy, I need to talk to you for a minute. Thousands of congregants were silent. You could hear a pen drop. My stomach sank to my toenails. Her voice cut through the silence like daggers through my heart. I'd been to this movie before. I knew what was coming. I couldn't move my body. Come up here and sit on the front pew. I was paralyzed. Come on now, be obedient to the word of the Lord. I stood and slowly plodded down the center aisle of the convention center to the front row, alone, emotionally naked. My mother's eyes were downcast as I passed her on the way to my crucifixion. She had done this to me again. She had put me in harm's way in Jesus' name. I finally reached the front row. I sat, obedient and pissed. Brother Billy, the Bible says in Matthew 7, 14, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Brother Billy, the Lord told me to tell you that every time you come into the house of the Lord, you are to sit in the front row. You want to know why? Because if you sit in the front row every time you come in the house of the Lord, it will keep you on the straight and narrow. This bitch thinks she's slick. You have been blessed with a great gift, and it has to be used for the edification of God's glory. Anything else you try to do will fail. Is this bitch cursing me now? Somehow she thinks God has chosen her to be the judge and jury of my life? Well, I got news for you, honey. 
quiet as it's kept, I have my own relationship with God and he or her or they or them or whatever doesn't need a third party to communicate with me. I have a direct connection to the spirit, trust. Of course, my mother feigned oblivious realness when I confronted her about the pastor crossing the, pastor crossing the line. Once again, she couldn't be she couldn't see the blatant attacks on my humanity. And I say once again, because she was too on the inside to see the microaggressions wielded at her own self. So how on earth was she ever going to see offenses hurled onto other people? How was she going to see that every time I set foot in the church building, someone in, would inevitably be shaming and blaming the gays? That woman outed me and cursed me all in the same breath in front of all those people, and I need you to know that I know exactly what she meant to do, but I'm not the one. As of right now, I will be removing myself from harm's way. I won't be attending any more churches with you anytime soon. She cried, I'm sorry, son. No need to be sorry. It ain't your fault, but I'm done, and I mean it. She got it. She knew. Even if she didn't have the language for what was happening to me, she knew deep in her spirit that how the sanctified saints treated me was wrong. From that day forward, she was never asked, she never asked me to go to church with her again. I let my mother off the hook with this one. Actually, I let her off the hook for everything, including not leaving Bernie when I told her of the abuse. I mean, what was she going to do, right? She was disabled. She didn't have no job, couldn't get no job. Who was going to take care of her and my little sister? What I didn't realize at the time was that I was unconsciously testing her, testing the waters to see if she could or would choose me. Unfortunately, at the time, she didn't have the tools. I'm proud to say that eventually she found them. However, in this moment, her apology would have to be enough. End quote. So I share that, that section to kind of give a little bit more context into this, um, you know, because throughout the memoir, it's interwoven how he's like going back and forth, um, trying to make peace with um, the contradictions and the, the hypocrisy and the homophobia and all of this that was, you know, thrown at him from a church community that's supposed to be an example of God's love. So next I'm going to move on to a few more examples of um, discrimination that um, Billy had faced. This podcast is brought to you in part by House of Isis, Beauty Naturally. Once I found House of Isis, I wasted no time replacing all of my daily grooming products with their vegan all-natural line. They offer shampoos, conditioners, hair oils, body and hair butters, body wash, and so much more. My all-time favorite product is the Shea Souffle Hair and Body Butter. I use it for myself and for my daughter. House of Isis products are handmade in small batches for the best quality. The company is Black-owned and woman-owned and is backed by 30 years of cosmetology experience from its founder, Miss Gina. Listeners of this podcast will receive a special 15% discount on all purchases using my code MJZ as in zebra, LOC as in car, S. That's MJ's Locks. 
House of Isis will take the 15% that you saved on your purchase and contribute it directly to my daughter, Maya Jane's, college fund. That's a win-win. You can find a direct link to houseofisis.co in the show notes of this episode, and don't forget to use code MJSLOCKS. That's M-J-Z as in zebra, L-O-C as in car, S. Thank you for your support. Quote, so there I stood at 11 p.m. under the bridge waiting for the 74A bus to take me home. Within a few minutes, I noticed a gang of boys across the street walking up the hill. The first sight of them didn't inspire any real alarm. But then, after having walked several blocks in the opposite direction, they crossed to my side of the street and headed back in my direction. And suddenly, I understood they were coming for me. What I'll never forget about that moment is how fateful it felt. There was no surprise at all. I've been waiting for, bracing for this moment all my life. The whole world had told me from my earliest memory that it had that I had it coming. So how could watching them walk straight at me feel like anything but a foregone conclusion? I had no energy to fight back, not even the will to run. There was nothing to do but let them come. Yo, the ringleader said as they closed in on me. Don't you go to that faggot school up the street? I knew he meant Kappa, which was in the neighborhood. I met his eyes with a fire in my own. I don't know what faggot school you're referring to. I was feeling myself. I wasn't going to be a fucking pussy for these people anymore. You know what faggot school I'm talking about, faggot. He spat. The boys surrounded me. There were six of them. I go to Kappa High School, if that's what you're referring. Bam. I felt as if I had been slammed across the face with a two-by-four. I hit the ground. They punched, they stomped, they slurred. This is what you want, faggot. This is what you get, faggot. This is what you get for getting smart, faggot. This is what you get, faggot. After several blows to the head, I lost consciousness. I don't know how long I lay knocked out on the sidewalk. When I woke up with my face against the pavement, I was alone, and I was cold, so cold, bone cold, though winter was over. I felt like I'd been run over and then dragged along the cement. My head was throbbing, my body battered. But what hurt the most was the first thing I registered when I pulled myself up on one elbow. There was a gaggle of people across the street, onlookers, observers, who had watched the whole thing and done nothing. They were still standing there looking at me, and now they walked off without a word. No one so much as asked as if, as if I was all right or tried to help me in any way. Slowly, I struggled to my feet and dragged myself to the gas station a few blocks away. In a phone booth near the pumps, I called my mother. Blood dripped from my face and spattered on the metal floor of the booth as I asked her to come pick me up and bring me to the hospital. My mother cried when she saw me. I hadn't seen my own face yet, but as soon as I soon would see that it was a mask of dried and oozing blood. My eye and jaw were swollen, and my face was black and blue. The diagnosis was a black eye, a fractured jaw, and a fractured rib. All the doctor could do was tell me to go home and heal. Just get some sleep, and for the next few days, try to rest as much as possible, he directed. You should be healed in about a week or two. How do you heal from living every day of your life in a society so hateful and dangerous you can't even walk down the street in peace? How do you heal from something like that? 
At 6 p.m., I woke up as usual and made myself breakfast. My mother, baby sister, and I were silent as we sat at the table together. She was so young during all of this. I didn't want her to be freaked out by my bruises and wounds. I wanted to show her strength and resilience, so I made the conscious decision to keep the ship moving. When I gathered my things to go, I saw terror in my mother's eyes. Her whole body was trembling as she said, The doctor said you need to rest. I think you should stay home today. I can't, I told her. Mommy, I can't. If I stay home, they win. I'm not going out like that. I felt her eyes on my back as I made my way to the side door. But when my hand was on the knob, I turned and spoke over my shoulder. I'll never stop doing what I'm doing. I'll never stop being who I am, I seethed. They don't like it. They're going to have to kill me. And then I was gone. That day was a turning point in my life. It marked the moment I stopped caring about making anyone else comfortable with who I was. I performed in hundred. I performed in front of hundreds of school children that afternoon with a black eye and a bruised face and a fractured jaw. If someone asked me what happened, I told them the truth. But even more telling was what I left unsaid. The mere fact of my presence and participation carried a clear message to everyone around me. And that message was, I am in your midst without apology. I am here to stay. I'm here as I am. And if you have a problem with that, fuck you. I would go on being precisely who I was. I wouldn't let anyone take my life or my work away from me. Never again would I apologize or hide or attempt to be something I wasn't. I wanted everyone to see my face, to take in the blood and the bruises, bear witness to the hate and cruelty, see what the world does to a person who's different, look at it, own it, and y'all fix that. End quote. That story speaks for itself, so I'm not going to comment anything additional to that. Um, The next example... um, as far as this section of the episode goes, um, is when he dealt with some uh, prejudice uh, at, I believe it was Carnegie Mellon uh, University. Quote, Earlier that day, I had received a letter from the school at my apartment. The apartment that I paid for with my own money addressed to the parents of William A. Porter II. These letters were a big deal back in the day. Nobody wanted to get a letter. Fat letters to the girls were a big one. Butchered up gay letters to all of us sissified queens. And of course, the more traditional progress report letters, which came in tears. One, warning. Two, probation. Three, final probation. Four, advised to withdraw. Now, make no mistake, advised to withdraw means yo ass got cut. Dismissed. Sent back to wherever you came from, soiled in, You'll never be a serious actor, loser, shame. Being a freshman or sophomore in the School of Drama at Carnegie Mellon in the 80s was like being a target in a dunk tank at a carnival, always on guard to be dropped. My freshman class at Carnegie Mellon started with about 60 students. Four years later, we graduated 17. The system was brutal. The struggle was real. Anything could get you lettered. Anything could get you cut. Even things you had no control over, like my queerness. Mine was a final probation letter for voice and speech, and it had arrived out of the blue with no warning. No nothing. 
So I paid a visit to the new department head and couldn't believe what I was hearing. I suggest you take a year off. Maybe take up smoking. Go to New York. You may get yourself a job and not even want to come back. Is this bitch for real? Is she really trying to come for me? Kick me out of this place? I put four years aside to learn my craft, to prepare myself for living the life of an artist. This is the place that's supposed to teach me how to do that. I know I'm not the greatest actor in the world, but I'm here to get better. I'm here every day, on time, working my ass off to do whatever it is I'm supposed to do. And I'm on final probation? Telling me to pick up smoking? I'ma punch this bitch in her neck. Cause now she's fucking with my scholarships and grants. I have to keep a particular GPA to keep this money so I can stay in this program. Hot tears streamed down my face sending a false message that I needed her comfort or some shit. She reached out to touch my hand. Are you okay? I snatched it back. Don't touch me. Don't condescend. Don't pretend that you care. First you tell me that I'll never work on the American stage, and in the next breath you say, maybe I'll get work and not even want to come back. Which is it? My body was trembling. Well, I mean, I didn't mean that you won't work at all. It's just the type of work you'll do, she deigned to say, tossing a bitch crumbs, I suppose. I had to shut that shit down. Listen, if my voice is too high for the American stage now in December, that means it's been too high since we started working together in August, correct? So why am I just hearing about this now? She gagged. These white people aren't used to being questioned, being called out on their bullshit. I have been to every single class this semester, on time. I have engaged. Why am I only hearing of this now? And with final probation? No warning letter? No probation letter first? She got that red face thing that white folks get again. That skin change very often brought on by embarrassment and shame. This bitch has no idea. I am not the one. I leaned in for the next part. And just so we're clear, it costs $20,000 a year to attend this university. And when the bill comes due, it comes to me. I pay these bills. Not my mama, not my daddy. Me. So if you feel like something is wrong with me, something I need to fix if my voice is too high for the American stage, I pay you people to fix it. So do your job. My next stop was the office of the head of drama, Liz Orion. I stormed past the executive assistant and swished and swirled right up to her desk. She was clearly frazzled by my rage. I did catch her off guard. What's this about? I said as I slammed the probation letter on her desk. She feigned amnesia. You're the head of the department. Y'all have y'all's meetings about us all the time, so you know damn well what I'm talking about. And now I'm getting a C minus in talking and a B in singing. I know my acting ain't so great, and I'm working on that, but this attack on my voice is unacceptable. Liz perused the letter. Billy, this is just a formality. Don't take this personally. I swear to God, the back of my head was going to blow off. My scholarships and my grants to attend this school depend on me keeping my grades up, and I pay these exorbitant bills by myself. So it is personal, because it's fucking up my shit. So, formality or otherwise, I'm going to need this fixed now. Well, what would you have me do? Liz hemmed. First, you need to get her straight. I don't deserve this grade, and you know... You know it, and she knows it. Liz sat silent, contemplative, sobered. I'll handle this. And that was it. I stood up to the bullies. I looked them dead in their eyes, and I won. 
but I wasn't finished. And one more thing. This B-grade, that vocal hack of a woman masquerading as a voice teacher has given me needs to change. A B in singing, I'm gonna need that upgraded to an A, and I need to be transferred to a different voice teacher for next semester. A B in singing, for real? The fucking nerve. Why is it always my fault? When folks don't understand me, they just go on the attack, trying to silence my voice, squash my natural instincts, Anything I say, how I walk, how I sit, how I move my hands and arms are all in the attack zone, end quote. So here's another example of kind of discrimination, also um, some elements of racism. But I, I commend his assertiveness and, um, you know, just being unapologetic about standing up for himself. I have no doubt that this book is going to inspire a lot of people to, you know, advocate for themselves and things like that. Um, so the next section I'm going to get into is the, um, the portion on kind of discussing some of the, the traumas, the mental health aspects, and also a little bit about therapy. So you're going to hear um, uh, several snippets of quotes. Uh, I'm going to piece them together and kind of just give you an overview of some of the things that were shared in this second section of the book. So this first quote is um, talking, or it's when Billy is past the years where he's being um, molested by his stepfather. But at this point, he now has a, you know, a little sister. And he, as he's older, he's concerned that um, if he was you know, molested by his stepfather, is there a potential that his uh, little sister could be in danger? So um, we'll see how that unfolds here in this section. So quote, and then right on top of these thoughts came another that was more terrible still, displacing all the others. What is he going to do to her? It didn't occur to me that in that moment, that somehow I'd managed to go four straight years with no awareness of the abuse. I'd blocked it out, dissociated myself. Hadn't remembered it at all. I'd separated myself from the trauma and compartmentalized it in order to survive. And now it had all come flooding back to me because I saw my sister, my sister at six years old with him, this man who was supposed to protect us. Somewhere within this vertigo of confusion and unanswered questions, I had a singular sliver of clarity. I had to take care of my sister. I had to know she was going to be okay. I didn't know whether my stepfather was a repressed, closeted gay man or an equal opportunity pedophile. But I couldn't afford to wonder without action a minute longer. So, and so I told my mother. Right then and right there, I went directly back to where she was sitting on that bench and said, Mom, Bernie molested me. My mother looked at me, her blank face of shock and incomprehension. What? Bernie sexually molested me. What are you talking about? For years, it went on for years, from age 7 to 12. It happened all the time. And I'm gay. The back of my sweet mother's head blew off. She had no way to process this information. 
She had grown up in a sheltered religious environment where this kind of thing was never talked about or acknowledged. It happened all the time, but no one ever spoke the words out loud. I spoke them out loud. He touched me, and more. And I'm not telling you this because I want you to do something about it now. I mean, there's nothing to be done. For me, I guess. But I'm telling you so you'll watch out for Eminem. You need to protect your daughter. Then I had to bolt back to the dressing room to change my costume, lest I miss my next show call. And that was that. We never spoke of it again, or at least for a very long time. End quote. And so this um, example here, he he finally, you know, he finally tells his mom what had happened to him um, in hopes that she would be more mindful and uh, protect his little sister, um, Eminem, um, that was her nickname, uh, from, you know, his stepfather. Um, and so the next little quote here shows kind of how he coped with um, still having to live under the same roof as the stepfather. Um, so here we go, quote, as I had so many times before, I hatched a plan for my own survival. No contact. I would fast- fastidiously avoid any contact with Bernie. When I got home in the evenings, I'd enter the side door of my home and go directly downstairs to my bedroom. I would sequester myself there until the following morning, and then I would leave again. Bernie's schedule had him leaving the house for work at 4 p.m., returning around midnight. So as it happened, I never had to see the man. I went for a period of months, from September through March, in which I saw my stepfather a total of four times, and even then, it was just in passing. I made sure I was never in the house, that my schedule was so packed I never had to see anyone or think about anything. Wake up, go to high school, then go to Kappa, then to dance classes, or a job if I had a gig, or a party if it was the weekend. I would do anything to avoid going home. End quote. So the next quote I'm going to share is about a kind of a conflict that uh, Billy had with his stepfather, Bernie, um, that kind of brought all of this information to the forefront. So you heard where, um, you know, Billy uh, reveals to his mom that he had been uh, sexually molested by his stepfather. Um, Basically, the premise of this is Billy gets home really late, which was not uncommon for him because he like went to school. He took all these really um, advanced classes and he was taking all of these like acting and singing classes and stuff like that. And, um, you know, doing plays and whatnot. So he was always, like he said, out of the house and things like that. So he gets home really late one night, which was very normal for him, but I guess the parents just never noticed. And so he's being confronted about being home so late And so that's where this um, example picks up. Quote, he cracked the belt once more and stalked towards me. I was immovable. We squared off eye to eye. If you hit me, you better kill me. He blinked, but didn't back off. What you say? What you say to me, boy? If you hit me, you better kill me. Silence. And then my mother shrieked. Tell him. I turned to her in alarm. What? Tell him. Tell him what you told me at Kennywood. Go on, tell him what you told me he did. Uh, no. No, this isn't the time. But even as I was sputtering, Bernie broke in. What you talking about? 
I didn't do nothing to this boy. I didn't do nothing to him that he didn't have coming to him. That he didn't have coming, my mother repeated, dumbfounded. Something's wrong with him. Something ain't right with him in the head. He ain't right. Something about him ain't right. I didn't do nothing to that boy he didn't have coming to him. It's a lie. He's lying to you. Lying about what? I flung at him. See, you just told on yourself. This hung in the air for a moment as Bernie registered his mistake, but soon enough he recovered himself and resumed his rant. He's a liar. He wants to destroy us. He wants to break up this family. What family? This family is a farce. You will respect me in my house. So help me God, you will respect me and you will respect your mother if you ever plan to set foot in my house again. I looked around the room at my mother, my stepfather, this home that held so much trauma. My mother will always have my respect, I told him. But you, you mean nothing to me. And I turned without another word and went downstairs to my room and locked the door. End quote. I think that was the the moment where everyone came to the realization of what had occurred. And so we'll we'll continue to see how that um how that unfolds. So the next quote is going to be um shifting gears a little bit. He's uh talking about what it was like to live through the trauma of the AIDS epidemic um in the the 80s and 90s um and kind of how you know the gay community was almost um there there was just so much death and um very little um resources to like come up with a solution especially on the political front so quote miss saigon opened on april 11th 1991 barry left the show at almost the year mark he summoned me to his dressing room and told me privately why he got the diagnosis, the death sentence. He wanted to spend his last days with family. Shortly thereafter, he disappeared. He died on October 31st, 1994. He was 31 years old. Nephi Wimmer, another Miss Saigon ensemble member, died in 1993. And there were many more. You know, that's what happened. Folk would s- silently dissipate, dissolve, disappear, and soon, soon fade from the memory of those of us left behind. It was too much to hold, too traumatizing to internalize every day, all day. So we partied, end quote. You know, he, him and his friends, they would, it was almost like unspoken, like if someone had just been, not been around for a long time, it was like assumed what had happened to them. Um, and one of the ways to cope was just to kind of, um, you know, party and kind of block out um, the devastation that was occurring, um, not just in the gay community, but just throughout that um, epidemic um, all the way through. And I remember um, when I read Jennifer Lewis's uh, memoir, The Mother of Black Hollywood, uh, she talked about how it was just like every time the phone rang, um, she knew that some, some, some close person to her had passed away due to the AIDS virus. So it's important to kind of reflect on that because, you know, um, every generation has a handful of different kind of world events and and traumas that kind of shape them and impact them. I mean, 
For me, uh, of course, you know, September 11th was a big one. I was like in fourth grade. Um, and, you know, uh, th there's usually one or more events that kind of separates our perspective, right? So I think of things as like the growing up in the 90s, kind of, you know, what I perceived as peaceful, you know, um, and then everything changed with September 11th. Um, and so the, in this particular, uh, memoir, um, that was one of the real big, like, um, tragic turning points, uh, for Billy Porter. Um, and so the last quote for this section is going to be, um, just some of Billy's thoughts as he, this is during the pandemic, but, um, he's, he's, uh, getting ready to, or he's in the process of, um, doing, going to therapy. So I'm going to share a little bit about that. So quote, my new therapy has brought the extent of my past trauma to the fore. Actual trauma therapy, like specific therapy with exercises and homework and shit. You know, I'm an education type of bitch, so I'm truly up in it. I need a change. My coping mechanisms don't work no more. There, there's another person in the room now, my husband, husband, there's responsibility that comes with marriage and the sanctity therein. I keep saying to Adam that because the world stopped, we have the space and time to heal our marriage. The whole world needs to heal. I'm trying to be present and open and mindful to all these ideas and concepts. I want to heal. I can't keep going the way I've been going for most of my life with blinders on, running, muting, compartmentalizing, ignoring, dissociating, and worst of all, numbing. Unconscious living, that's what I was doing. How I've been living for so long. Focus on the dream, trying to get out, trying not to be that statistic. End quote. So I'm going to wrap up this episode with a, a couple of hopeful things. So uh, this first um, quote here that I'm going to share is just uh Billy kind of reflecting on some of his mentors. Uh, he refers to these people throughout the book as his angels. So, quote, Alex was the last of her siblings left at home, and her parents had just moved to an expensive contemporary home in Mount Washington with floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the resplendent Pittsburgh skyline. The family went out, on high, went out to high-end restaurants once a week. Alex was allowed to bring one guest, and that guest was always me. Not just once or twice, but every single week for a year. For a year. Angels, again. Martin and Judy Berger were the kindest of parents. They were present, they listened, they engaged, they worked their asses off to give their kids the childhood opportunities they likely never had. I think back to my time with the Burgers so fondly because they didn't know it, but they were teaching me skills I would need, including fine dining, how to order, which fork or knife to pick up first, and how to tell a red wine glass from a white wine glass. I had so many questions that were answered over the course of those evenings. What was a haricot vert, a filet mignon, a balsamic reduction? What was arugula? Alex and her family have been lifelong family friends ever since. They were supportive of me from the start, and I never and and I will never forget it. Midway through 
my senior year at Kappa, Peggy Hughes all but yanked me into her office one afternoon. Lenora Nemetz was already there. What is it, I said. What's the matter? What did I do? We heard you think we heard you think you're going to New York City once you graduate. Yes, that's the plan. Well, you're not. You're going to Carnegie Mellon. That school down the street? That school down the street has one of the best drama departments in the country, Peggy snapped. Lenora chimed in. Billy, you're immensely talented. You're one of the best singers I've ever heard, and now you're a phenomenal dancer as well. But every time you open your mouth to speak, it's a disaster, Peggy shaded. And then, in unison, they declared, and you must learn how to act. Well, okay, I said, taken aback. I mean, I trust the two of you, and I do want to learn to act. But if I go to college, I don't want to go here. I'll apply somewhere outside of Pittsburgh. I want to get out of here. I need to get out. The program at CMU is a conservatory, Peggy told me. It will be as if you're not here. They will take all of your time. You will start at 8 in the morning and end at midnight every night for four years. Trust me, not even you will know you're in town. Auditions are in a couple of months, so you need to get prepared. One classical monologue, one contemporary monologue, one dramatic, and one comic. Two songs to sing, and you'll take the dance class. That's, an, that's the audition. There are a couple of other schools you should apply to as backup. We'll let you know what they are shortly. Well, how am I going to pay for all of this? College is expensive. There are ways. There are loans, grants, scholarships, and you are a candidate for all of them. End quote. So I won't uh, read the whole section, but basically he got accepted to Carnegie Mellon and he um, got the scholarships and everything that he needed to make that um, happen. Um, and so this last um, section I'm going to share is on another mentor that he found once he was at Carnegie Mellon. So, quote, Lee Cass was another angel. He spent the entire first semester of my freshman year at Carnegie Mellon researching my voice. He was amazed that my voice could do the things it could do, the heights it could reach, with full belting power. He would stand in front of me with both of his hands on my throat as I sang the highest and loudest that I could. Perplexed and intrigued, he set out to figure out this extreme vocal type that he had never encountered before. End of freshman year, Lee came to me so excited. He found the diagnosis, a logical, definitive description of my voice in a book. You're a tenorino, he exclaimed in his basso profundo that rattled the walls which means you're the highest of the highs that a man can be. And though you're considered to be in the countertenor and castrati tenor family, your voice is not a light falsetto head voice sound. You can belt up there naturally and healthily. Rather than try to shape me into something safe, something he knew, Lee celebrated me for my gifts, for who I was, end quote. So thank you for listening. As always, um, I will be back with part three very soon. Um, but until then, take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast 
right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.